Hey everyone, and thanks for tuning in to this week's message. My name's Aaron, and I'm on the staff team here at Eastlake. Everything we do around here depends on the generous donations of our local and online community. People just like you, who tune into these messages and see great benefit from living that idea that life is a gift and love is the point. So if you love what Eastlake is up to, we'd encourage you to contribute by going to eastlakecc.com. With that, let's jump into this week's message. Today, we hear from Kent Dobson as he continues our series, Wild, Reconnecting with Our Hidden Nature. Please check the description for links to our quarterly Spotify playlist and guided meditation. Hey everybody, welcome to East Lake. I'm Kent Dobson, really glad to be teaching again today. This is the second of a two-part series, so if you missed last week, well... That's the amazing thing about the World Wide Web. You can still watch it. So the two-week series I've called Wild, Reconnecting with Our Hidden Self. And I'm trying to make a case that not only do we have an instinctually wild, deep part of our own psyche that we need contact with, used to be called in the old mythic language, the green man, the green woman, this... Uh, vital, forest-dwelling, sometimes darker and uh, instinctual part of our human nature we need contact with. We need contact with because it's in part where the creative fires and energies of life come from, these deep instinctual places, which are often in conflict with culture. What mom, dad, king, queen... um, rules, borders, nothing wrong with any of those things, try to curtail, try to talk us out of. And for a while, that's good. For a while, that's good. To, that's part of growing up, to have our wild nature framed in a bit. But if it goes on too long or we completely lose touch with it, then we lose touch with eros and vitality and energy and power and creativity, power in the positive sense and creativity. So I'm trying to make a case that we need that. And, and we also need contact with the wild world. And really it's, it's our deep wild nature that needs to be reconnected with the deep wild world, with its own intelligence, with um, what is untamed and unbendable. If you remember last week, that was a line from Rilke. Um, What is extraordinary, extraordinary and eternal does not want to be bent by us. That's the wild world. That's um, nature in red in tooth and claw. That might be Whitman. Don't quote me on that. But we are two million year old beings in that sense, in terms of our deep human psyche. And all of that, all of that vast, stretch of time, we grew up much more intimately connected with the wild world. It was our mother and our father and our teacher and, and what clothed us and fed us. Um, 
not always friendly. That's the funny thing about nature just as it is. And nothing like a global pandemic to remind us that nature isn't exactly our friend, but it's something that we are deeply interwoven with. There are moments of union, deep moments of union and connection. And of course, our own wild nature is natural. Our instincts are natural. So in part, I'm just arguing we need to be reconnected to these creative fires and the artificial um, nature of culture right now, mitigated through screens um, and the regimented uh, entertainment-driven culture we're in right now, which seems to take up all the space. Here, here are all the things you ought to care about pushes down even further that instinctual self so that at times it does we don't even know what we feel anymore we're told what to feel we're told what to think um and 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 in some ways i found even with some people because i lead uh, uh retreats outside take people to wild places they're even afraid just to sleep out under the stars and and i understand that it's a natural fear because suddenly you're you're out in an environment that you're not in control of i mean wait a minute um I'm vulnerable here, but that vulnerability is also part of what makes us feel deeply alive. And um, and to reconnect in some way with the natural world, with the wild world, is to reconnect with our own wild nature, and is also to have access to the deep creative stream that we that we need right now, that culture needs right now. I'm not the kind of person that says run away from culture and hide in the woods. I'm the kind of person that says have a deep, as deep as you can, relationship with the natural world, with the wild world. If it's standing um, on the beach or walking in the park or going deep into the woods, any of those will do. Have a relationship and let, let that inform how we are to be in the world and, and how culture is to be in the world. And, and, and I would go even further and, and say that Something of our of our, our deep wild nature is needed to rejuvenate and reimagine um, human culture, human life, human culture, so that we don't wreck the planet and we don't tear each other to shreds in tribal warfare, which is not only something that's happening on the military front, but in part it's little a little how our economy is even structured so um okay that's just to make the case why we need our instinctual self now i said last week i'm going to repeat myself that culture and our own wild instincts are always in tension and that tension is good we need borders boundaries and we need access to the wild we can't have too much of one or the other it's is that the, the actual tension is what creates the possibility of the third. What I'm saying now is for most of us, we've forgotten the, the instinctual side and we need to reconnect. And those, are, and, and those are the stories of our ancestors where particularly young people were sent out on a, on a walkabout, out into the woods, out into um, like the Native American vision fast or Jesus wandering after John the Baptist or spending 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness or the Buddha leaving culture and civilization and to sit under the Bodhi tree. I mean, these are 
archetypal patterns um, is all I mean by archetype. It's a pattern that tells us that's part of how, um, how we're informed on the soul level about who we are in the world and what's ours to do in the world. We need that deep connection. And, and so part of how I'm approaching this the last couple of weeks is to tell a couple of fairy tales that are related. Last week I told a bit, a very tiny bit of the story of Iron John. And the story is of a hunter who discovers a crazy, hairy, curly, rusty, wild being out in the forest, tries to lock it up, um, only later to have a, a boy who will one day become the king, let it out of the cage, wound himself, and have to be taken to the forest with the wild man. It tells you something about how the masculine is oriented toward the wild world and toward their own wild nature. In order to grow up, in other words, uh, the boy definitely gets wounded, but has to let the wild man out of the cage and has to spend time in the forest um, as a forest being, you could say. Maybe you read that book. It was popular maybe in the 90s, Last Child in the Woods. Read it sometimes. Very interesting book um, about education. And... Anyway, this ancient wisdom that, okay, we live up under mom and dad, king and queen, but if the wild man forever remains in a cage or even worse is forgotten about and tucked away in a forest and we don't even know he, he exists, then we're not going to have access to the deep streams, to the vitality, to eros, to creativity. And in the story, um, the masculine, and, and I said this last week, but masculine and feminine are, are elements that we all carry in, in our psyche, regardless of gender. So um, if, you're a, if you're a woman, you have something to, to hear from masculine-oriented stories and the other way around. And so I think that's one of the gifts of Carl Jung. He said that we contain both anima and animus, meaning masculine and feminine energies, and they both need cultivation. But my point now is that um, the masculine energies... Uh, in a sense, in the story, have to steal the key away from the mother and spend time in the forest. And I think it's funny because in some, in some sense, I think you can take the fairy tale of Iron John and there are elements of it that can be taken literally. Like, no, quite literally, we need to spend time wandering outside the castle, outside the containers of culture, outside the phone that tells you what to think and what's important and what's urgent, all in this repetitive cycle of, in algorithms, feeding you back your own worldview. No, you have to say, absolutely not, I cannot do this. I have to go talk to a stream, um, to an elk, to a landscape, to a flower, to the moon, and spend time Nearer the wild, hairy, curly, um, unshaven, unkempt, um, deep and sacred masculine as a principle, masculine principle or energetic form, you could say. That's the story of Iron John. Listen to last week for other things that, that um, come up in there. So this week, I want to share just briefly the story of the handless maiden, because it it's talking about similar themes, but from a, 
more of a feminine perspective. And the feminine and the masculine, it's like the yin and the yang, both matter. And the tension between the two is where all the, the fun happens, we could say. But the relationship that the feminine, ha feminine has with the wild is a little bit different. So the tales um, and legends and myths and stories sound a little different. So I thought just to balance it out, let's talk a little bit about the wild woman here and uh, through the lens of the handless maiden. So the story begins with a miller and the miller shows up in a lot of fairy tales, particularly from Eastern Europe, um, European tales. And the miller was, is a symbol of human technology, really, because in most of the stories, the miller uses a, a, a wheel um, hooked to a water source to grind grain. Now that's a fascinating uh, piece of technology as it relates to the development of human culture and, and the human psyche, we could say, because what used to take weeks or months of backbreaking work, whether by hand or even with a mule, now was on automatic. It's like pushing the button. It's like plugging the phone in. It just works as the water wheel turns as much grain as you can put in. So it afforded a certain amount of free time to the miller. So you could say the miller becomes a kind of suspicious character. And if you think about the masculine like this for a minute, or if we think about men in general, um, to make it about gender or uh, patriarchal cultures, it's telling you something that oftentimes the men who have learned to master certain elements of the natural world have a little more free time on their hands and might get into trouble. So as soon as you hear a story about, about a miller, you start paying attention because what happens is the devil or some kind of evil spirit comes to the miller and says, um, I'll make you a deal. I'll give you gold and treasures. Probably it means something like, I'll give you the secrets of this technology in exchange for what's behind your house. You're gonna pay me something. It's gonna extract a price, which tells you something. The story, which is 5,000 years old probably, something like that, is saying technology costs something. Our gains cost us something. The convenience of plastic costs the earth something. It costs human culture something. And, it's, and that something, um, no matter what it is, asks for human attention and consciousness. And right now, much of the true cost of things is hidden from us. That's the world of marketing. Uh, I, there was a really long article in Rolling Stone about, about recycling. I recommend reading it sometime. I think CNN even did a, a special on recycling recently. And all those little like um, triangle arrows with the one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, the kinds of things that can be recycled are, were made up by um, the marketing arm of the plastic industry. Let's, let's communicate to people that, that these are recyclable, even though they're really not, and that's not what happens to them. One and two can be, and sometimes are. The rest are pitched into the landfill, but they have a little symbol on there, and then we feel good about ourselves. You don't like what I'm saying? Dig into it yourself. The Miller story says that's always how it is. 
There's a hidden cost that's behind the barn. So the man thinks, the miller thinks, oh, it's just my old apple tree, goes about his work. And all of a sudden these new riches start coming in and his wife starts to get curious, hey, what's going on with all these new riches? He said, well, I made a deal and um, it all, it's only gonna cost me what's behind the, behind the old barn, the apple tree. And they go behind the old barn and realize it's their daughter who's sweeping, cleaning, and they realize the terrible mistake. So it tells you something right here at the beginning of the story that oftentimes the feminine um, is traded for progress. Feminine energies, the way the innocent feminine experiences the world. You could even say something like, and this is more of a Jungian interpretation, the feeling function is harmed in some way. And, and, and we know that, like, progress, technology, just make it, do it, costs us something on the feeling end of things and the feeling function. So they realize their terrible mistake and they try to negotiate with the devil. He's not hearing any of this. And um, he comes to fetch her one day, but because she's been crying, he can't and because she's too clean. I mean, there's another way of saying too innocent. And so they, they come up with a compromise, a horrible, horrifying compromise that both mother and father agree to, and that is that they cut off her hands. She weeps on her hands, they cut them off, and the devil doesn't want her anymore. And she realizes, the handless maiden, that she can't live with mom and dad. And this is a little like Iron John. There's a realization that um, it's not working, but this story is maybe more powerful because it says something like the masculine way of viewing the world here, not that one is good or bad, I'm just saying, um, cuts off the innocence here and she can't live with them and goes to the forest. So the first clue we get as to the restoration or the consequence and restoration of such a terrible wounding where, where the ability to do, to make the hands is cut off by culture. The only solution is to go to the woods, the wild. That's the first step. Hey everyone, it's Kristen. Just wanted to take a moment to say thank you for tuning in. I hope that you're finding these messages helpful for you in your everyday life. Um, that's what we're trying to do here is gather around the idea that life is a gift and love is the point and let's give ourselves ways to move forward in that in our own everyday world. Um, so I wanted to take a moment to say thank you for being a part of this community. To those of you who have participated and given financially, we want to say thank you to you. Everything that we do here happens because people make contributions. People say, I value this place. I want it to exist for me and for other people. And so I'm going to support it. And so we just want to say how grateful we are um, that you do that. And for those of you who maybe haven't had a chance to contribute yet, um, we would ask you to consider maybe doing so. If you find this place beneficial, if you find these messages helpful for you, then um, consider joining us in that way. You can go to eastlakecc.com to make a contribution. We just always are thankful for the people who want this place to exist. So thanks again for tuning in. Let's get back to the message. So it, again, it's a clue that if something in us is cut off, you're not allowed to do chop off the hands. 
And we could say, historically speaking, women have experienced this more than men. That's part of what, that's why I love these fairy tales. They, they, they give us clues for even the problems that we've created in our own cultures. So it's a little clue. And off into the woods she goes. So the story continues. She wanders around hungry till one day she stumbles upon the courtyard of a king. And the king being the noble dimension of the masculine here. And, and um, <clears throat> the garden is very beautiful. And she sees a series of pears and they're all numbered. And um, in some versions, a sort of angel figure helps carry her across the moat and she comes to the garden and she eats only to satisfy her hunger and returns to the woods. But of course, the king gets suspicious and they sort of, him and a servant, hide out one night and they realize it's a beautiful woman and the king falls in love with her, invites her into the court, marries her and says, the whole kingdom is yours. You don't ever have to work again. She's, you don't ever have to go hungry again, but she still has no hands. And, and the king says, don't worry, I've made silver hands for you. And he places the silver hands upon her and she can go about her business. Now, on the one hand, we could say something beautiful is happening here in the psyche. The original cut off from mother and father, the cast out, the handlessness of the feminine has gone into the woods for a time reconnecting with the wild nature, the instinctual nature. Her instincts begin to come alive and she is hungry, that's desire. And in this case is satisfied with the pears, but she's sucked into the world of the king for better or worse. And the king can't help her grow her own hands back, but supplies her with silver hands instead, which is lovely beautiful. She can go about her business, but they're still artificial. And she can feel the pain of that, the loss of that. Even as she, you know, is able to do things she wasn't able to do before. So eventually the king goes off to war and the, and she's pregnant and writes a letter to the king to tell her the good news. And another evil spirit or devil or something comes and changes the words and mixes up the messages like that old game of telephone. King writes back, messes up the messages. And she gets the impression that the king wants her and her child dead. It's a mistake. But nonetheless, the story is communicating. You may have silver hands. You may be getting along in culture. You may be well-liked. You may be prized by the king. You may be doing everything right. You may be a really good girl, if I can bring some interpretation in here. Um, but there's something still not very real about who you are in the world. And she goes to the woods again. She goes to the woods again. And in the woods, she different version. She stays for a while in a cottage of like an old hag. And the old hag is, is an image of the deep wisdom of the feminine that's often outside of culture. That's a bit wild, that she may have her own wires, wiry hair on the chin. Um, but she finds refuge, again, in the wild world, allowing her instinctual self to grow again. So away from culture, away from being a good girl, away from the silver hands. And by the way, um, I just wanna pause here and say, you could ask yourself, especially if you're a woman, have I ever felt 
well-liked and well-appreciated, but whatever it is that I was being well-liked and appreciated for felt artificial, felt like these aren't really my hands. I, I thank thanks, but that, this is not really who I am. Um, and you could say the same thing too if you're a man, because again, you've got the masculine and feminine principle inside the psyche. So um, some of us might suffer um, a similar sort of feeling. Men might suffer a similar sort of feeling. <clears throat> so what to do? Well, time to go into the woods. Time to go into the instincts. Time to, um, to weep. These things almost always begin with grief. Grief is the great initiator in the old myths and stories, and it's the great initiator of the present right now, the 21st century, the world that we find ourselves in. Um, our tears, <clears throat> it's like the ocean out of which all of life emerged from an evolutionary point of view. When we cry, we're participating in that ocean of, of opportunity and and possibility. So when you find yourself with silver hands and still feel unreal, it's time to go visit the hag or it's time to go into the forest. It's time to go into the woods. It's time to go back to the instincts. And she carries her baby with her. And one day, terribly, horribly, the baby falls into a pond and she can't get the baby out. And in, in, um, a reactive, instinctual move, without thought, she reaches out with no hands to grab the baby and the hands grow back. And she fetches the child out of the water and is restored, her hands are restored. Now eventually her and the king meet back up through a weird set of circumstances, which I won't go into right now because what I'm would like to just suggest and focus on is the regrowth of the instincts, especially in this story, the feminine instincts, which culture, the harsh side of, of we could say, of the masculine-oriented, aim-oriented culture might cut off the hands initially, but the more pleasant, kingly nobility wants to repair it, but it does it in an artificial way. The only solution is the, are the woods. It's actually horribly, terribly solitude, loneliness, tears, wandering, separation that begins to have an effect on the handless maiden. And at a moment when she least expects it, those instincts, those deep, the deep self rises up, the feeling function, the Eros, the passion of life, rises up and regrows and she can fetch her son, which we could say is a symbol of, um, well, we could say it's a symbol of children, but more than that, it's, it's a symbol of the potential growth of something new. And it kind of happens, one of the, the puzzles about the difference between the masculine wild and the feminine wild the masculine wild often feels more like a journey, like I'm going to go out and I'm going to mentor under the wild man for a while, under Iron John, out in the forest. He's going to give me tasks and I'm going to either do them or not do them. And there's a, there's a whole myth there that's worth reading. Very task oriented. Whereas in the feminine, 
it seems to happen, we could say, almost by accident. It's like in the solitude, in the quiet, in the dark, at the hour of the wolf, at three in the morning, the instincts begin to grow back. Think of how many ancient, um, maybe you're not a student of ancient religion, but there are all kinds of, there are all kinds of secret uh, feminine societies and religions in various parts of the world. And one of the things that we know about them is that we don't know very much about them because they happen in the dark. They happen in secret. We don't really know. That was the whole like <clears throat> fear with the, with the witches of Europe and, and of America, like burn the witch, you know, like Monty Python. Um, but horribly, men, many hundreds of women lost their lives. And Part of that was just poking around in the reality that the masculine, especially the dominant masculine, doesn't know the secrets, doesn't know the secrets and doesn't deserve to know the secrets. So part of what I'm saying is from a more feminine perspective, sometimes we're at a stage in life where quiet, solitude, not explaining yourself, not posting, going into the woods, wandering around, um, finding a hag or two to live with, and the instincts begin to regrow spontaneously and mysteriously. Not really so much because of a task, but because of the mystery of this kind of reju rejuvenation process, we could say. So what can we sort of ask here in this little brief two-week reflection on our own wild nature. First of all, some claims. Every single human being, every single human being has a wild nature. And part of growing into the fullness of who we are in the world requires contact with the wild nature with our instincts and our eros and our passion and our pathos. And, and it's actually quite challenging to recover our own wild nature. It's challenging because culture is suspicious of it and they have you know, every right to be because it might burn the house down, we could say. But what's being asked, I think, of people in the 21st century uh, is, um, a re reconnection with this wild nature and also a reconnection with the wild world, with the natural world, with um, the gifts of nature. It's the place in both stories where our own wild nature is healed and restored. It doesn't happen back in the castle. You don't take a class. You don't go through a five-week study. You know, it's <clears throat> it happens by exposing ourselves to streams and lakes and forests and parks and wanders in the city in the, the mysterious moonlight or um, one oak tree on, at the end of your suburban block. After all, the natural world is far closer than we often realize, but I guess the question is something like, what is your relationship with both your instincts and with the wild world? And, and if you feel particularly deficient, like 
I don't have much of a relationship with the wild man or the wild woman, with the green man, with the green woman, with the, with my hands haven't grown back, or I'm actually quite afraid of the, the, the wild man. I prefer just to remain a little boy, you know, not that we would admit that out loud, but um, then the natural world helps. And a time of of separation might be in order. Ask yourself, um, what, what do I need to say no to to find a deeper yes? And don't think that this is just some sort of narcissistic kind of like personal project of yours. Like it's much bigger because to, to connect with wild, as I'm describing it, is to connect with the energies of the universe, with the creativity of the universe. And we need that now, I think, more than ever. I want to end with um, a quotation from Abraham Heschel as a way of just inviting you out to find your own wild self and perhaps over the next week, a deeper connection with the natural world. Go for a swim, go for a walk. Just open up your body and your heart to, to the way things are. So maybe, maybe first a, a, a story. When I was 19, it's another Yellowstone story. Uh, I went to Yellowstone with a friend and got a backcountry permit. And while I was in the backcountry, two of the more mysterious and profound experience of, experiences of my life happened to me um, by accident, we could say, through no action on my part, other than I said yes to, to sleeping outside. One of them happened at night, and if you've ever been camping, I'll tell you the worst part about it, and that's having to pee at night. It's like that simple. That's the worst part of camping, just having to get out of your sleeping bag when it's 30 degrees at 8,000 feet above sea level to pee outside. It's terrible. And also in bear country where I was in Yellowstone, it's quite frightening. I mean, it's kind of silly as if like a tiny five millimeter piece of nylon is gonna protect me from a grizzly bear, but that's the feeling inside your, inside your tent. So I had to pee in the middle of the night and I got out you know, stumbled my way outside and looked up. And it was like I had never really seen the universe that we inhabit, that we're privileged to inhabit. It was the stars at night with no moon at 8,000 feet in a, in a meadow in the largest meadow I've ever seen, really. It just leveled me, pinned me to the ground. It's like I couldn't move and I couldn't breathe. And a kind of electricity was moving through my body and, and, and the existential feeling of what is this place? What is this place? And to be leveled like that. And I, maybe, this is, maybe this is true of all kind of, kind of spiritual experiences, because that's, that's how I would describe it, is that they're not, they're not manufactured. You know, I wasn't meditating or 
praying or I just had to pee and I was actually quite annoyed and I was cold. And in that kind of destabilizing place where the ego isn't in charge, um, yeah, I was pinned to the ground by the mystery of existence. And um, I mean, I was 19 and, and that, even as I'm telling the story now, which doesn't really do it justice because these things are really hard to speak about, I can still feel the power of, of that place and, and that moment. And here's the line from Heschel. He says, um, we can never we can never sneer at the stars. We can never sneer at the stars or mock the dawn. We can never sneer at the stars or mock the dawn. And there's something, there's a kind of sickness happening in our culture, a sickness of cynicism and mockery. And that's what the political landscape is. Who can I mock and who can I sneer at? That's what, that's what Twitter's, um, f the, the, the gasoline which fuels Twitter is cynicism and mockery. And, you know, I mean, there's a place for critique. I'm all for critiquing our culture and our world and our leaders and fine. But there's something contagious. Maybe the real virus is, is cynicism, sneering and mockery because it feels so good. I think it feels so good to the ego, not to the soul, but to the ego to be right and to point fingers and to look down upon. And, and that's why it's so contagious. And that's why we can't stop it. It's like, who can resist gossip? But that's essentially what all of social media and all of the media provide for us is one giant gossip pool that, that, you know, floods us constantly. And the antidote, the antidote are the stars because you can't sneer at them. I can't stand in an unlit field in Yellowstone and laugh at the stars, how silly and stupid is the universe or something. Or mock the dawn, you know? So try it this week. Get up before the sun comes up and allow yourself just to experience the mystery of, of the world as it is, the mystery of the sunrise, the mystery of dawn. Um, allow yourself to be taken down a peg, to be leveled. Um, and then return to culture and see if it doesn't have an effect on the way you see the world. So what I'm saying is expose yourself to the wild. Allow yourself to come down a peg or two. Feel a bit of your own vulnerability. And in doing so, see what starts to wake up in its place. My guess is those instincts those energies, those fires for the next chapter of your life, the regrowth of hands that feel more authentic, the rediscovery of, of, um, of a wild man inside that has secrets that the king in the castle doesn't know anything about. See if those ancient um, ancestral energetic fires don't come alive a little bit and begin to inform your life in a way that might surprise you. So that's as far as I want to go. I want to wish you well. Thanks for tuning in to Eastlake. Go outside, read some fairy tales, 
and I hope to see you down the trail somewhere and sometime soon. Peace. Thank you for joining us. To make a donation, head to eastlakecc.com slash donate.